So if you'll turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14, we'll begin our study today in that wonderful Gospel record. Chapter 14 contains a couple of miracles. Actually, there are multiple miracles, but they're bound together in two specific events that took place in the ministry of Jesus. Remember the last time we were together, we talked about the fact that John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas had heard about the ministry of Jesus and he presumed something about the ministry of Jesus that many others also were thinking that this must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. There were those who thought that. There were others who thought it was Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But it was Jesus. It was the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Master of all, the Creator of all, in human form, who had come to this earth for the purpose of dying on a cross. But when Herod found out that Jesus was doing all of these things, it appeared as though Herod was interested in snuffing him out, just like he did with John the Baptist. He wanted to end John's ministry, and he did, because of the things that John was saying. Jesus was saying the same things. And so Herod really did not want Jesus doing what he was doing. When word came to Jesus that John the Baptist had been beheaded and that Herod thought that he was John the Baptist risen from the dead, he didn't leave because of fear. He left because it was not the time for him to reign on the throne of David. That would come later. It was not the time for him to go to the cross. That would come next year. It's about a year away. He's approaching the next to the last Passover that he will celebrate with his disciples. And so instead of staying in Capernaum where he had been ministering in the northwestern corner of the Sea of Galilee, he decided to take his disciples over to the northeast corner near Bethsaida, a large community on the northeast side. And in that general region, there were many smaller villages and it was a wide open area on that side of the Galilean Sea where he wanted to take his disciples to get away. His purpose was to recuperate, probably not for his own benefit, although we find that he does go into a place alone to pray, but for the benefit of his disciples. They had just come back from the assignment that he had given them, you will recall, to go out into all the various villages along the Sea of Galilee on the western side and proclaim the gospel message and heal the sick and do all kinds of miraculous things. They had now come back to Jesus, and according to Mark, they were reporting the wonderful things that God was doing through them. And Jesus now, because of all of these events that have been taking place, tells his disciples, we're going to go rest for a while. Now, I find that to be almost amusing because there is no rest for the Savior as he ministers to the people in the land of Israel. So he does. He gets in aboard a ship with his disciples, and they take the ship across the three or four miles to the other side at that point in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, really, the Sea of Galilee is not that big. It's about seven miles wide at its widest point and about 15 miles north to south. You can see from either the west or the eastern shores the opposite shore at the Sea of Galilee. And when they took off from the northwest corner of Capernaum into a boat, the people who were 
following him, recognized the fact that he had gotten into the boat, saw where he was headed, and they took off by foot across the northern mountain region to the other side because they could see that that's where Jesus was headed. They wanted to hear more from this one who was speaking such marvelous words and doing so many marvelous miracles. They wanted to see him still continue to minister to the people. So not only the healthy, but some of the sick were brought with them over to that other side. And they beat Jesus and his disciples to that place. They saw where he came ashore. They knew where he was going to end up. And they were there waiting for him. And that's where we pick up the story in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14, verse... Well, we'll read from verse 13. It tells us, now again, referring to what Herod was saying, when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. And of course, with his disciples. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to his disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Pray with me for a moment. Let's see if perhaps we can garner something very, very important for all of us out of this reading of God's Word here this morning. Lord, that's my prayer. I do ask, O God, that You would fill us with Your Spirit and that You would anoint the words of this great book Lord, I'm only a messenger, and I ask that you would anoint that which I speak. Let your word go forth in power and not return to you void according to your word. And let your name be glorified, Lord God, as we study it together. In Jesus' holy name, amen. This miracle that has been presented by Matthew here in these short verses is a miracle that is presented in all four Gospels. It's the only miracle that Jesus performed, that is recorded in all four Gospels, with the exception of the resurrection. And so it's a very important miracle from the perspective of every one of his followers, not only the apostles, not only the followers in his day, but for all of us here as well. The feeding of 5,000 men. No small task, is it? Now, some expositors would say, well, because it says in Matthew's Gospel that there were also women and children, there must have been a large number, greater than 5,000 people present. And some would even say that there were perhaps as much as 20,000 people there. As a matter of fact, if you listen to Raoul Reese, who's a very good Bible teacher from Calvary Chapel in California, he insists that it was at least 20,000. 
And he uses that number. Well, Matthew uses 5,000. I'm going to stick with that number. 5,000 men. We don't know how many women, how many children there were. There were probably several, but the, the accounts go from anywhere from six or 7,000 to, as I said, 20,000, and it's anybody's guess. But as far as the feeding of people is concerned by the Lord God, it doesn't make any difference how many there were. It could have been 5,200 people altogether. It could have been 20,000 people. But neither of those numbers is of any great significance to our Lord. After all, remember that in the wilderness, the people of Israel, who numbered over a million, were being fed daily with bread from heaven. Bread from heaven. Manna. And He gave it to them every single day except for one each week while they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, if He could do that with over a million people, what difference does it make if He's feeding 5,000, 20,000 or the numbers of people that are here in this room here today? It all is the same thing. It's miraculous that He's willing to feed His people. And we are among those who are indeed being fed. Now, I look, look at God's Word and I read the Word of God and I... Take it as food to my spirit. It is life to me. The Word of God is indeed food that we can spiritually consume. And I hope that that's how you approach the reading of God's Word. Feed me, O God, from Your Word. Let Your Word speak to me. Let Your Word fill me so that I won't be hungry for more. I will be satisfied to know that, Lord, You have been blessing me in the reading of this Word, and I am satiated when I read His Word in that way. And I hope that you are too. It's important when David said, Thy word, Lord, I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. His word is precious. And it is the bread of life that we're talking about. The very word of God. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. And he, the word, is speaking of the nourishment that comes from knowing him and trusting him and learning about him and living for Him. And when we do that, we indeed will be filled. The song, It Is Well With My Soul, we'll be looking at that a little bit later on, but I want to point out the fact that there is nothing that we will have to encounter that will ever cause us to fear if we have faith. So there's a great deal of faith that is being manifest in the reading of this Word and in the activities that took place back then, almost 2,000 years ago. And as I said, all four Gospels give record of this particular miracle. Mark is the one who says that there were 5,000 people, doesn't mention women and children, but he talks about the details that Matthew doesn't give, and so does Luke, and so does John. But I want to focus primarily on what John says that's really of greater significance than what I might share with regard to Mark and Luke. It would be wise for all of you to reread this passage, read Mark chapter 6, Read Luke chapter 9, read John chapter 6, and see what they all together say. But John's account is very interesting in that after he had fed the 5,000, he sent the disciples in a boat to go back to the other side. 
He said to them, I will meet you there. And after they had left, he told the people to go back home. He dispersed the people. And then, John tells us, he went to prayer. The reason that Jesus sent the people away is because they wanted to make him king. Now, take note of the fact that Jesus said to them, it's not my time, apparently, because he sent them away. He could have let them proclaim him to be their king. He could have started a revolution and it could have been over in just a matter of days. It was not yet time for Jesus to proclaim his kingship. And so he dispersed the people. John tells us very explicitly, oh, they were really satisfied with the food that they received. And because he fed them, they thought that perhaps he would be the one who could become king and he could keep on feeding them every single day and they would be happy and joyful and filled to the full because their Lord was able to provide for them just like God did in the wilderness with the people of Israel. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for their stomachs to be filled. They didn't have a clue, at least initially, of what Jesus had come for. Even though he had been telling many of them that he needed to go to Jerusalem for a completely different purpose. His time was not yet. They wanted to make him king, but he was not going to allow them to force him in that position. Take note of the fact that Matthew says they only have five loaves and two fish. It's John who tells us that Philip was asked by Jesus before the discovery of how much food they actually did have. Jesus asked Philip, you feed them. He says that here, but he said it specifically to Philip. And Philip's response was, Lord, it would take 200 denarii to feed this many people. That's 200 days wages. So it's impossible. The impossibility that God the Son is asking His people is still the way He operates with His people today. Do you know that the Lord expects the impossible from you and I? Think about it. He had told His disciples through the Word of God, He tells us, without Me you can do what? what? Nothing. With God, all things are possible. With you, it's not so, is it? You can't do anything that would make it so that you could accomplish anything for God through your own effort, by your own strength, with your own intellect. We repeat that very thing over and over and over again in our studies in the Word of God. That's what the Word of God tells us. You and I cannot accomplish a single thing that will honor God without the Holy Spirit. But with the Holy Spirit, we can do all things because we have been made able to accomplish great things. Jesus had told His disciples that after He is gone, the Holy Spirit will come and you will do greater things even than He had done. He wants us to understand that we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the impossible. 
Philip didn't understand that concept. He said, Lord, this is impossible. There's nobody here that's got that kind of money to go out and buy that much food. And so when he asked, it is Mark who tells us that a little lad apparently had five loaves of bread, probably barley, and two small fish. And Andrew brings that to Jesus' attention. He said, there's a lad here who has five loaves and two fish, but what are they to so many? It was a good question. What can we do with that small amount? And even in this group, it wouldn't last beyond the second row. I know how much Bob eats. So listen, Jesus, again Mark tells us, he knew what he was going to do. That's why when he asked Philip, it was no surprise to him when Philip said, wait a minute, we can't afford that. I'm surprised that it wasn't Judas who said, we can't afford that because it was Judas who had the money bag. But regardless, the apostles all agreed, Jesus, this is impossible for us. What do you mean you feed them? He was testing their faith. He was testing their ability to stretch their understanding beyond their own ability to know then what God can do through them. So Jesus said to his disciples, bring that to me. That little lad was willing to give up his lunch. Now, if you uh, read some of the um, expositors like William Barclay, who was a great Bible teacher, by the way, but he didn't believe in miracles. He tried to explain in a natural way every single one of the miracles that are recorded in the New Testament. Not necessary. Because they were indeed miracles. And supernatural things are not beyond the power of Jesus to accomplish. And he demonstrates that here. William Barclay thought, well, because the lad gave up his meal, it caused all the men who were there to feel guilty, and they then opened up their bags to spread what they had around so that everybody was fed. That is not how it happened. It tells us very plainly here, Jesus said, bring them to me. And in verse 19, he says, he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. Now, Luke and Mark tell us that they were set up into companies of 50 or 100 people. So this is a very large place. We've got 12 disciples, two fish, five loaves of bread. How do you divide that up between all of those people? Think about this as we read further. He says, looking up to heaven, Jesus blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. Now Jesus commanded them, you bring those things to me. And as he blessed it and he broke the bread, somehow that bread began to multiply. And they had baskets that were small baskets, kind of like our picnic basket that we have today. And they apparently put whatever he broke into their baskets. And as they're doing so, their baskets begin to fill up. Nobody can explain that in a natural way. This is a supernatural event that's taking place before their eyes. And he says, now you go 
talking to his disciples, and you distribute the food to all the people. Not only did they have to believe that what they had in their basket was enough to get to the first group, but they had to believe that it was enough to get to all of them. And as they continued going forth, the baskets never emptied. There were 12 apostles. They went out with 12 baskets full of food and they distributed to 5,000 men plus women and children. They came back and there were still 12 baskets full. Jesus does all things well. Do you wonder why He allowed those 12 baskets to remain full? We're not told by Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, but my assumption is that the disciples needed to see that. They needed a reminder. As a matter of fact, Matthew gives us another account where Jesus again feeds a multitude, this time 4,000, with seven loaves and a few fish. Now, the same event kind of took place, so some people believe it was the identical But no, it wasn't because Jesus later on in Matthew chapter 16 talks about the two separate events. And he asked his disciples as they're crossing the Galilean Sea, how many baskets full were there when you fed the 5,000? And they said, well, 12 baskets full. How many bushels full after the feeding of 4,000? Oh, there were seven. So we have two different events. And I emphasize baskets and bushels because that's the way it's spoken of in Matthew's Gospel. In the first, this case, it was small baskets, like I said, picnic baskets. In the second occasion, where he fed 4,000, there were huge bushel-sized baskets. He said, don't you remember these things? Because they were talking about the fact that they had left the shore, gotten the boats, and forgot to bring bread with them. And Jesus had said, Guys, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes. And they thought, Oh, he's talking about the bread. We forgot to bring bread. No, that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about the fact that the sinfulness of the Pharisees and the scribes, beware of that influence in your lives and mine. Well, back to the story. Jesus has now distributed, or his disciples have now distributed, all that was necessary. It tells us that they were filled. And the word in the Greek language simply means they were glutted. They were satiated. They couldn't eat another bite. Have you ever had that experience? Probably more often than we'd like to admit. But yes, they were filled to the full. They didn't need any more. They were satisfied. Jesus did the miracle. He did what they could not do. He did the impossible. He wasn't expecting them to do the impossible. He did the impossible. But He used them to give out what He had accomplished by distributing that miracle to everyone present. So He does His part. We do ours. Take that home with you. Chew on it. He does His part. You do yours. You may not feel capable of doing great and mighty things for the Lord, even though He tells us that we will do greater things than even He did. As believers in Jesus Christ, we should be able to do marvelous things, impossible things. But all He's asking for us to do 
is to do our part. And when we do our part, then we realize that our part was far bigger than we could have ever, ever imagined and realize then that we are indeed doing the impossible things for God. And it brings great joy and comfort to my heart, I hope it does to yours, that in our weakness, then He is strong. And He does great and mighty things through us by His Spirit. It's not our doing, it's His doing. And we can take that to the bank. So He sends them out. They do what He tells them they are to do. They respond by obedient willingness to serve in the capacity that He gives them to serve. So it is for us. Are you serving God? Every day, you should be serving God in some small way. Some of us have different tasks to perform. But in obedience to our King, our Savior, we do them. And when we do them, He is blessed. And when He is blessed, we are blessed. It's so wonderful to do the things that God calls us to do, even though we don't think that we're able to do them. We know that He makes us able. He provides the way. And as was said earlier today, all things work together for good to those who are in Christ Jesus, who love God and who are loved by God. He commanded the multitudes to sit down. They sat down. They responded. They didn't know what was happening. You've got 5,000 men plus women and children, and all of a sudden people are saying, okay, everybody, form groups of 100, form groups of 50. You sit here in the grass. We'll be back at you in a few minutes. Even the disciples didn't really know at that point why they were doing what Jesus asked them to do. So it takes a great deal of faith in what Jesus is saying and know that there's going to be coming after what He has spoken something that will bless, something that will confirm, something that will glorify our God. That's faith. They took by faith the command of Jesus and did what He asked them to do, even though they didn't understand exactly how it was all going to work out. And that's the way He wants us to be as well. Even though we don't know how it's going to work out, even though we don't understand what the outcome might be, we know that God is in control. And so we go by faith and we trust in Him to accomplish all that He wants to accomplish in and through us. One person has said, He takes little things. You and me, you have little to offer, but great things result from it when we allow Him to use us in those small ways. They all ate and were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. And now, Jesus, after having accomplished this, goes on to the next phase. He's already done the impossible after having asked them to do the impossible. He does that which is impossible. And He sends them to confirm that which He has done to all the people. The people have been dispersed. The disciples are now sent away. And Jesus is alone. John tells us He went up into the mountain to pray. And it says in verse 22, Immediately Jesus made His disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side, verse 22, and while He sent the multitudes away. And when He had sent the multitudes away, He went up on the mountain by Himself to pray. So Matthew says it as well. Now when evening came, 
He was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Not every one of the twelve disciples were fishermen, but several of them were, and they were used to the Sea of Galilee. They knew that the Sea of Galilee was a very, very calm, normally, lake. That's what it is. It's not really a sea. It's a lake, a very large lake. But at certain times, wind from the north will tunnel through the mountain passes and cause a great stirring of waves on the Sea of Galilee. Five-foot, six-foot waves are not uncommon. Suddenly, and then after a few moments, they typically die out. And it's back again to a calm state. We already saw one time when the disciples with Jesus in the boat with them were in the midst of a storm, and they feared for their lives. This time, Jesus is not with them. And it seems as though that they, instead of taking just a couple of hours to get from Bethsaida to Capernaum, thinking that they were going to be taking the reverse route that they had originally taken, the wind comes along and pushes them out into the middle of the sea. And instead of two hours, we're told that on the fourth watch of the night, that's at least eight or nine hours later, they're still rowing in the middle of the sea, or at least trying to keep the ship afloat, probably bailing more than rowing, and they're in trouble. But Jesus knows it. And somehow, supernaturally, Jesus is able to see them. It's between the hours of 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the morning. So if it's in the middle of that fourth watch, say around 5 o'clock, there may be a little bit of light appearing. But if it's more like 3 o'clock, it's very dark. But Jesus, it says, saw them toiling in the middle of the sea. I believe that that was a supernatural thing, that Jesus was able to see what was going on in their situation. He's still able to see what goes on in your every situation too, by the way. Don't you forget that. The boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, and the wind was contrary, it tells us in verse 24. Then he says, Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. Another miracle. Jesus is walking on the sea. Again, if you look at our friend William Barclay's commentary, he says that, well, they weren't really far offshore, and Jesus was walking on the shoreline in the water, but still not going too far under, probably ankle deep, was his opinion of that. It tells us it was in the middle of the sea. All of the the writers of this account tell us it was in the middle of the sea. Jesus was walking on the water, and it wasn't frozen water. I can walk on ice. That's easy, as long as it's about six inches thick. If it gets any less than that, I'm not going out on that ice. Because I know that ice even though it's solid, isn't strong enough to hold my weight if the ice is too thin. So I want to make sure it's got at least six inches. That way I've got confidence that I can walk on water. But that's the only time I can ever walk on water. I've never tried it in the summertime. I don't know about you, but I'm convinced that none of us have ever walked on liquefied water. Jesus did. But he's not the only one. Read on. Verse 26 says, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost. 
And they cried out for fear. Now they were already fearful about the situation they were in. Now they see what they think is an apparition and they really lose it. They said, it's a ghost, we're done for. They were really very fearful. It tells us that word in the Greek is not just afraid. That means they were shaking in their boots if they had boots on. Immediately then, verse 27 says, Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer. Don't be afraid. It is I. The Greek words, it is I, really can be translated, should be translated simply, I am. Have you ever heard that phrase before? The I am has spoken. Jesus uses that phrase about himself more than once. Here in John's Gospel when he confronted the Pharisees and the scribes, I am. It should remind us of what Moses heard at the burning bush because it was there that God Almighty identified Himself as I am. And every time I see those words together, I am reminded that Jesus is here letting us know He is God. It is I. I am. Be not be afraid. I'm also reminded of another account of a situation that the Apostle Paul was facing when he on his journey from Caesarea to Rome, he was put in a boat, he was a prisoner. And in that experience that Paul had, that's recorded for us in the book of Acts, they experienced a huge storm in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And for many, many days and nights, they were struggling, thinking they were going to lose it. But Jesus had appeared to Paul... And guess what he said to Paul? I am. Be not afraid. He says that to you and to me as well. Be not afraid. Don't fear. The Bible tells us perfect love casts out all fear. Why would we fear? If we fear, we don't have faith. If we have faith, we don't have fear. It's that simple. You either have faith to believe in what Jesus has said and what Jesus is able to do for you and for me, or we have fear all our lives and wonder, what's going to happen next? Where am I going to go? How am I going to deal with the situation? What is happening to me? Why is it happening? You're under the circumstances when you think those thoughts. And fear overwhelms you, it grips you, and keeps you from having the faith to believe that God is allowing that in your life to be able to make it through your life in a way that will please Him. As Matthew so succinctly said today, we need to have those kinds of experiences in our lives. They're faith-building experiences. And God uses them to bring us to a place of victory in our lives. Let it happen, Lord. Let troubles surround me. But I know they cannot harm me until you choose to let them do so. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament, Daniel, prophets of God, spoke on these things. His friends, Nebuchadnezzar was angered. Actually, it was not Nebuchadnezzar, was it? Well, maybe it was. The king of Babylon at the time. I think it was Nebuchadnezzar. In any case, they refused to worship the gods of the Babylonians. And it was Nebuchadnezzar. 
And because they refused, they were going to be put into a furnace that would be heated up seven times because Nebuchadnezzar was so angry at them for having rejected him as their God and the image that he had placed in the land of Shinar that they were supposed to have worshipped, which they refused to do. Their answer to the king was very, very significant to us. For they just simply said, Look, Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to serve our God, whether He saves us from this or not. We believe that He can. But if we die in this, we're not going to serve your God. We'll always serve our God. What they were saying is, I don't have any doubt that God is able to deliver me from this situation. But if He chooses not to, I'm okay with that because I know where I'm going. That should be our attitude as well. And guess what? God's delivered them out of that situation. And He did save them. And they did survive that fiery furnace unscathed. In fact, Jesus walked in that fiery furnace with them. Be of good cheer. I am. That's good enough for me. Is it good enough for you? Now, remember we said that Jesus did the impossible. And the disciples weren't able to do the impossible because they didn't have the faith to do the impossible. But take a look at verse 28. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, do it. Come. Now, Peter could have asked a lot of different things. Lord, if it's you, deliver us from the storm like you did the last time. Lord, if it's you, bring our boat directly to the shore so we don't have to bail out like we're doing right now. Lord, if it's you, help us in this situation. Do something to save us from this perilous time that we're facing. But instead, Peter said, Lord, if it's you, let me come out on the water with you. I'd like to experience what you are doing because it really looks cool to me. Walking on water appeals to me. So, Lord, if you're willing, if it is you, let me come out there also. Well, none of us really can know what motivated Peter to say such a thing. But what Peter was saying required a great deal of faith for him to actually do what he was suggesting. And that's the point of the whole story here. Peter had enough faith to recognize that Jesus had the power to enable him to walk on water. Because Jesus was doing it, he could do it too. That's what Peter was expecting. I can do the impossible because my God is here and He is a God of impossibilities. And as long as He is here, I can do what He tells me I can do. Case closed. That's how we should be in our Christian experience. I can do anything that Jesus allows me to do. Do you understand what Peter is saying? I'm trusting in Him to enable me to do what I cannot do. It is impossible for me to walk on water. I know that. But with Jesus, all things are possible. Wow! And so Jesus says, that's good faith. Come on out. You will be able to do so and I will allow it, Jesus says to Peter. So, Peter complies. Verse 
29 again, Jesus said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Everything's going really smoothly here. Jesus is waiting for Peter to come to him on the water. Peter takes his first step or two and realizes he also is walking on water. And he is, he's got to be so thrilled. He's got to be so excited about what is taking place in his own life. Doing something that is totally unreal. Beyond his imagination. Totally impossible. What would happen? Verse 30. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Saving me, Lord! Save me, Lord! What did he do? He took his eyes off Jesus. He looked at the sea around him. The raging storm was still going on around him. He looked at the water. The waves were coming near to where he was standing on top of the water. But because he saw all the other things, he took his mind and his heart and his eyes off of his Savior. And he began to sink. Now, it doesn't really tell us how far down he got before he cried out to Jesus, Lord, save me. It doesn't tell us how fast he began to sink. It just says he began to sink. And I'm wondering if maybe it was a slow motion experience for Peter. I'm on top of the water, and all of a sudden I'm looking around, and as I'm looking around and I see the waves, what took place in his heart? Fear. And what did we just say about fear? With fear in your heart, faith is not there. If you have fear, you cannot have faith. He had faith to walk on the water, but when he finally looked at the situation and he saw all of the things that were going on around him, he began to worry. He began to doubt. And he became fearful. And as he became fearful, he began to sink. And it is then that Peter, very wisely, called out immediately to Jesus, Save me, Lord! And he did. He always will. He always does. When we cry out to Him, in moments of doubt, in moments of fear, cry out to Jesus and He's there to hold your hand. He's there to pick you up out of the trouble. He's there to deliver you from all that is going on in your life. No matter how difficult it may seem to be to you, He is able and He's willing. He reached out His hand, grabbed Peter by the hand and pulled him up. And they both got into the boat. It says in verse 31, Immediately Jesus stretched out His hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? I almost wonder if Jesus was smiling when He asked that question. Oh, Peter, why did you doubt? You should have known better, Peter. Or perhaps it was with a bit of disappointment. Peter, you should have recognized that fear is going to ruin your faith. Either way, I'm convinced that Peter caught it and he understood the power of faith and the power of fear. And they are not coexisting. Quite a lesson for Peter. It's a lesson for us as well. I hope you understand that what he's spoken here to Peter is what he is speaking still to us today. 
You can't walk on water, perhaps, unless Jesus, of course, tells you you can, then you are able to do so. He's not called me to do that. He called Peter to, and Peter did. Peter did the impossible. That which only Jesus could do, he allowed Peter to do. So it is with us. He allows us to do the impossible. Let's trust Him in that. When they got into the boat, verse 32 says, the wind ceased. No more need for the wind to be tossing that boat. The lesson has been taught. The lesson has been learned. The implication is that Jesus calmed the sea immediately, just as He had done before. But it wasn't until the lesson that Peter had to learn that He calmed the sea. He could have calmed the sea long before this. But he wanted to draw something out of Peter and his disciples and you and I. Verse 33 says, Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. That's the first time they speak those words. You are the Son of God. Now, we don't know how well they understood what they were saying, but they blurted it out. They recognized that this one that they were walking with for so many months already had supernatural power that they couldn't explain. And the only real explanation is that He is the Son of God, the one who had been promised, the Messiah. He is the one that was shown in all of the Old Testament prophets that was to come and be the Savior of the world, that was to come and reign on the throne of David and sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. He was the one that was promised by God to be their king. You are the Son of God. The only other place where somebody other than the disciples say that is the demons. And one Roman soldier at the crucifixion. Surely this was the Son of God. The demons were proclaiming that truth long before Jesus heard His own disciples say it. But they're beginning to understand now. They're beginning to sense that He is more than just a man. We'll finish the chapter with these last verses. Verse 34 says, When they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. Gennesaret is somewhat south of Capernaum, more on the westerly side of the lake. So they drifted down in that storm, and when they finally got back to the shore, intending to go to the northwest corner where Capernaum was, they ended up in Gennesaret, which is further south. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Now remember at the beginning of our study this morning, we said that Jesus had told his disciples we're going to go to a quiet place. And the implication was in the other Gospels that he's recorded for that purpose to let us know that it was his intent for them to be finding some rest. Did they find rest? They had to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. They had to get back into the boat and cross over in the middle of the night, the Sea of Galilee, and find themselves in the middle of the storm, working hard to stay afloat all night long. Then they finally get to the other side sometime around daybreak, 
And immediately, a multitude of people come, and Jesus is healing them all. Where did they find time to rest? They didn't. But in the doing of God's will, they had rest indeed. And that, to me, is so very wonderful to know. I can labor for the Lord, and it can be burdensome sometimes, and it can be tiresome sometimes, but I know that I, in doing those things for the Lord, have a rest that I would never, ever experience without having done that which God asks me to do. So I take great pleasure in working for the kingdom's sake and resting in that work because even though it may be difficult, even though it may be tiresome, I can be refreshed in it. And I can stand and say, Lord, you're so good to me. And even though I am tired and worn out, I am filled with joy to be able to serve you and to honor you to do your will. And in that, I find much rest indeed.